Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ask the Professor, a crowd-supported, crowd-driven feature where we answer your questions on constitutional questions, political philosophy, economics, history, geopolitics, even culture, things like architecture, all that matters to us in our life together as citizens. And today's question comes from Steve, and he says, could you do something on the common law, please? Perhaps a series on the great justices. Let me say right off, it's an excellent question. I'm not yet ready to talk about the great justices other than Edward Cook, who I will talk about at the drop of a hat. But I'm certainly keen to weigh in right away on the common law, which is a wonderful thing unique to the English-speaking world. There was frequently bafflement uh, between Canadians, Australians, Americans, New Zealanders, uh, British themselves, uh, and continental Europeans, even in countries where they do have a robust system of law that actually works pretty well, including in France. I'm sometimes amazed that France works as well as it does. I think it's a tribute to the French because there's much about their laws that strikes me as impossible. But uh, this is an example of this misunderstanding or, or failure for the minds to meet between the English system of a law that rises from the people and a French system of law that comes down from the government. Abstract law codes created by the authorities and imposed on the society, answering apparently to the dictates of perfect reason or something vaguely approximating it. And so I want to quote something that Daniel Hannon says in his book Inventing Freedom, that the common law is also known as the law of the land. And this is not a phrase that you will find anywhere else, and that's because it arose in a manner that you do not find anywhere else other than very small-scale societies where pretty much everything is done by the consent of the community gathered round the fire, as Tacitus's Germanic tribes more or less seem to have done it. But somehow, in Britain, then in Angleland, then in England, then in the United Kingdom, the process was preserved and strengthened even as the political unit grew to national and even international size. And we find this, if you look at one of my documentaries, because I have talked about this before and I hope you will, Magna Carta, True, Strong and Free, even a Right to Arms, lay a heavy emphasis on the fact that we the people are not invented at the time of the American Constitution. Far from it, the Americans were attempting to preserve and strengthen the defenses of a system that they knew was more than 500 years old at the time of the Revolution that dated back to Magna Carta and back to before Magna Carta. And one of the ways you can see this that is extraordinary, under King Henry II, and in case you're not totally up on these monarchs, he is the father of bad King John. And he dies in 1189 and is succeeded by Richard Lionheart, Coeur de Lyon, who is not a good king, despite the Robin Hood legends, and then in 1199 by John. But Henry II is a great lawgiver to the English in some sense, but in the continental model that would mean that he had created a law code, that he had thought of everything like Justinian and then told everybody here's what you should do and they would all have gone, oh yes your majesty, either because it was brilliantly wise or because the alternative was painful death. But That's not what Henry did. Henry was in a kind of power struggle with his nobles over control of the courts and he won by a sneaky and underhanded maneuver. He gave better justice in his courts. He would send out justices around the kingdom to go to where people and their legal problems were and they would impanel juries who were not, in, as in the modern world, merely meant to judge the facts of a case and to be ignorant coming in of everything that was connected to it. On the contrary, these juries would be asked first 
what is the law under which you have lived and to which you have given your consent by living under it? And then what happened in this case? And so it was that Henry's justices over a period of decades discovered what law the English had given their consent to by living under it. And thus we see, because if you think about how laws are made, if I ask someone today in Canada, well, how, is it, how are laws made? This is obviously by a legislature or in a tyrannical system by the word of the dictator. But there is no parliament in the time of Henry II. The first things that look anything like parliaments arise in the 13th century under John's son, Henry III. There are irregular councils. The Saxons had a kind of gathering of notable men, the Vitanagamont. But... There's no such thing as a problem. There's no law-giving body. And yet the kings aren't making law. It is absolutely not the case in England, whether you're talking post-Norman conquest or pre, going back into the Dark Ages, the House of Wessex, Alfred the Great and that crowd. The king does not make law. The community makes law. This is the common law. And this is a miracle. And after Magna Carta, which is created to reign in John's desire that he should be allowed to make law on his own, you get ever more elaborate institutional defenses of the community's right to control the conditions under which it lives, particularly Parliament. Parliament does arise, and from 1265 on, almost literally from the beginning, it includes the common people. Very quickly, the House of Commons sits separately and gets control over taxation because it is, of course, the common people who ultimately bear the burden of taxation, even if most of it's levied on the nobles. They pay for it by what they collect from those working their land. And all of this preserves this miraculous inheritance, something that most people in the world not only don't have, but have trouble understanding, both common people and the political elite in places like China or Russia or Iran, cannot understand how you could have law that came up from the people. They can't understand how you could have it as a practical matter. They can't understand how you could have it as a matter of moral legitimacy. Surely the people must be controlled and dictated to for their own best interest. The common law is a unique and beautiful and valuable thing. And there are parts of the world that have adopted it, primarily those people don't have much good to say about the British Empire, but I do. Places that were colonized by the British often managed to absorb a lot of the good British governmental traditions in the course of rejecting formal British rule and some of its more obnoxious qualities. So the common law is the origin of the idea of popular sovereignty that is written into the American Constitution because not because it is a novelty, but because it is a very old and valuable institution that has been under siege in Britain on a number of occasions, including by the Hanovers in the 18th century. So, if you want to know more about Edward Cook, again, watch the Magna Carta documentary, his courageous defiance of Stuart monarchs, both as a practical matter and on grounds of principle, is a wonderful thing and part of our liberty of legacy here in Canada. The others, we'll have to get back to you on. But on the common law, let us by all means understand and treasure it. Now, if you're enjoying the Ask the Professor feature, this URL will tell you how to submit a question. Please also go to my website, that's johnrobson.ca, click the Yes I'll Help button, make a one-time or monthly contribution because that's what sustains me in all the work I do, the quotations of the day, the Ask the Professors, even the documentary work, although of course they have separate crowdfunding campaigns. Yeah, I write for the newspapers, I do radio, but it's all as a freelancer. There's no pension plan, there are no benefits. It's up to you to help me continue what I do. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.